Welcome to Garden DC, the podcast about everything gardening in the Washington DC and Mid-Atlantic region. I'm your host, Kathy Gents. I'm the editor of Washington Gardener Magazine, and we're aimed at gardening enthusiasts, people who grow everything from edibles to ornamentals, natives to exotics. If it grows in our area, that's what we talk about. This episode, we're joined by Eva Monheim. Eva, how are you? Fine, Kathy. How are you doing? Great. Uh, we're coming up on Memorial Day weekend, and it looks like we're finally going to have some good gardening weather um, in the mid-Atlantic after all these rains. I think that we have been really lucky with this spring mm-hmm. weather. Yep. It's nice and cool, and the blooms have lasted much longer than they typically do. Exactly. Um, especially in Washington and Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think it's, I think we've been blessed that way. But not yeah. Way. <laughs> <laughs> I think if you're a vegetable gardener, you're kind of champing at the bit to get out there and get those tomatoes in the ground. But uh, for ornamental gardening, yeah, it's been bliss to be out there weeding without the, the heat and humidity coming in yet. So that's great. I think everybody's gardens are looking really good around here. The, the, the weeding, I saw one whole family. I've never seen this family out before, but mm-hmm. everyone in the family was out weeding and mulching the garden beds in the front of the house. And I was like, whoa, this is something new that we <laughs> haven't seen before. And that, it, it looked, it turned out beautiful. Wow. So that was nice to see. Yeah, That's family, a, family encouragement there. <laughs> and, and it teaches the little ones. So. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we're, we're here um, on this episode to talk about mainly your new book on shrubs and hedges. But before we dive into that book, I wanted to talk a little bit about your background as an instructor and a certified arborist. Um, so let's go dial it back to the beginning uh, maybe not birth, but maybe a, we'll, 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 we'll fast forward a couple years down the road, um, maybe to your first gardening memory. Well, um, my first garden memory, I actually write about, um, I, well, I write a lot about memory uh, in my case, um, because I am uh, trained in literature too. Um, I write about it in my he- Shrubs and Hedge book about uh, feeling the uh, cool microclimates from passing by hedges and noticing hmm. noticing people's plant selections in their gardens. Um, but earliest, the earliest memory was from my grandmother and my mother who were both avid gardeners. Um, my mom always had ever-changing flower beds in the front of the house and on the side and the back. Um, and she didn't take that lightly. She, she actually did it as a relaxation. I could tell because she took a lot of time doing it, but it was about making her house look wonderful, but making it feel good when we would drive up in the car or we would be sitting on the front steps or when we would, she would, I remember even as a small child, her putting me in the play yard in the front lawn and I would be underneath a big Rosa Sharon tree. That that was these were some of my early memories. 
and how she explained why she put this shrub here and that shrub there and this one was from my grandmother when they first moved into the house you know my father and mother first got married and they moved into the house and she took she took my mom out shopping for shrubs hmm. so I think that's pretty telling right there that there was there was there was a love of gardening from the get-go and from having grandparents from eastern europe they they were they were farmers and my grandfather classified himself not only as a blacksmith but a woodsman Hmm. so we'd go out on many expeditions with him to pick blackberries and i don't know how he knew what he knew but we would go to these remote places to find a whole big patch of blackberries or um raspberries and come home with um quarts of of berries and my mom would make jams and jellies and things like that so those were early memories and had, when i was five i had my own garden oh um, so nice yeah a small a small garden mm-hmm. it didn't have the best aspect to it but it was a little garden that I could grow, of all things, lima beans. Because <laughs> I liked lima beans. I was going to ask, did you actually eat those lima beans or were they just because they grew pretty quickly? Yeah. I just liked mm-hmm. eating them raw. There was something about a good lima bean. I don't know. A little strange for a five-year-old. <laughs> but that's the way it was. Mm-hmm. So. Those are my earliest memories. And then I spent a lot of time with my, at my aunt's farm and my other aunt's farm. Um, And the one that I write about and who has, there's some photos in my book about my one aunt's property. Um, I, I just think that the fond memories from her place and watching her garden was just so fascinating. And the stories that we would hear and, you know, going and playing with my cousin and going picking watermelons for dinner and working in the strawberry patch at her house. Those were all things that um, always bring back good memories, and especially the smell of strawberries when you're out in the field and oh, yes. they're ripe and you're picking them for, um, she used to sell at a local restaurants, you know, they're really big, colossal uh, strawberries way back then. Um and that was really fun, you know, and she made a, a, a wonderful business out of, out of her strawberries. Her, she lived on part of the family farm, which was 30 acres. And hmm. uh, so she managed it well. And her mother still lived in the old house, which was built back in the 1600s and, and then um, eventually came to live with her. So um, yeah, that's. And yeah, and there's just nothing like picking a strawberry out in the field and eating it right there in the warm sun. That that's right. Yeah. And the, and the other the other thing is that I was really captivated by the hedgerows that were around the property because the hedgerows were where it was it, it was almost like a magical place because that's where mm-hmm. uh, the the huckleberries and the blueberries were hiding and mm-hmm. um, we would go pick blueberries um, and huckleberries and. Um, so I knew that they were a treasure trove also. So um, that to me was uh, fascinating to, to learn about and to watch and um, see animals going to hide in there like fox and possum oh. and um, raccoons at nighttime 
you know, that was where they hung out because the fields <laughs> had the vegetables in them and the hedgerows were good places for habitat. So, hmm. and you're in the Philadelphia area is this family farm, um, uh, within driving distance in Pennsylvania. Oh uh, yeah. It was, um, it was about a half hour from where we where our first home was when we were growing up in the city. <clears throat> then we moved to a suburban area in Montgomery County and the farm was in Montgomery County. Um, and uh, still the a parcel of it's still left and my aunt still lives there and mm-hmm. I still go visit her. It's not too far from where I live now. So, And for listeners of this podcast who might be in the DC area, this is the other Montgomery County um, not in Maryland, but in Pennsylvania. That is correct. I know mm-hmm. that the Montgomery County is in Maryland, mm-hmm. and we're the Montgomery <laughs> County in yeah. Pennsylvania. <laughs> not too far distant, but definitely d- different size. Um, Dif- yeah, yeah, different size, uh, d- different, different demographics. Feel. Yep. Yeah, d- different demographics. Different, yeah, and we, we still have a lot of um, farms that used to be a lot of greenhouse production in this particular mm-hmm. county, um, and it wasn't anything to go a half a mile and you would run across a, a greenhouse. Nice. Um, so, yeah, so that's, that's the childhood that I had. <laughs> and then what prompted you to go to Penn State for a horticultural degree? Oh, that's a really great question. Um, behind our second house, there was a 26 acre farm that was owned and operated by a family that had been there since uh, William Penn grant, uh, William Penn gave the family or Hmm. gave the family the property. And it was a really fascinating thing to, um, meet the farmer. We used to get our corn and vegetables there. And he was well-known throughout the region because he had the best of everything. And he had the coolest um, corn husker. And and he was very sustainable because corn husks went back out on the field. Hmm. We don't hear about this today, but we saw it. He would, you know, the corn husker there. But anyway, the farm was behind us. And the one day he was plowing and I asked him if I could garden in the back where the farm, where the piece of farm that he hadn't touched he he said oh yeah I'll, pl- I'll plow up a little piece of uh ground for you and he said you could have a garden back here I was like maybe about 10 and uh we started having a garden there my dad helped me and we started planting vegetables and he said the one thing you really need to plant are peanuts hmm. because everybody should see a peanut plant so we planted peanuts and we I used to get stuff from I think it was Guernsey Nurseries up in North Dakota, I think it was, or South Dakota. And we used to send away and get purple string beans and all kinds of crazy things. And they did have peanuts in there. We used to get the raw peanuts and plant them in the field. And um, the first time I ever saw peanuts growing was in our garden. And they had the most amazing fragrance when when they started to bloom, Mm. Uh, like a really sweet smell. Um, and, and they're in the bean family, of course. And mm-hmm. so, uh, that to me was magical and, and having that garden, uh, allowed me to experiment. And that's how I really saw myself going into, into horticulture. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I heard the word, it sounded right. It sounded, it sounded good i wanted to have a big name for what i was doing so horticulture seemed um 
uh, ideal. So when I, when I got to high school, I talked to my counselor and she said, why would you want to go to school for horticulture? (laughs) Nice. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. So I applied to Penn state and I applied to a couple other schools and I got accepted into Penn state, went up there for a tour and I started at a branch campus. And then my second year I was up at the main campus and I really never looked back at the same time. I had a really great, I had several great uh, advisors at the time. Professors were typically their, your advisor. And um, the one was a geneticist and he was amazing. Dr. Craig and Richard Craig. And then my advisor was uh, Dr. Ernie Bergman and Ernie was a, he was a specialist in plant nutrition and he uh, he guided me through, and I did some plant nutrition experiments and tomatoes on tomatoes. That was my hydroponic mm. hydroponic tomatoes was a big thing back then, and so I I did that as my final project for my senior year. And he also was um, a collector of stamps, illustrated botanical stamps. And at some point, I think it was maybe my second year, I asked him if I could talk to him because I wanted to get two degrees at the same time. And like, people just didn't do that, that back mm-hmm. then. And he said, well, let me see what the president of the university says. So he went to the president who was a friend of his and he said, yeah, he said, but don't tell anybody that you're doing it. <laughs> and so I got my, I got my horticulture degree and then I got my um, degree in art. So they were in two different colleges. So um, you didn't mix colleges back then and you didn't, cross over or talk to anybody that wasn't in your discipline it was like very siloed Hmm. so so I got my degree in horticulture and my first job was being the very first woman in the cut flower sales business for Pennock wholesale house in Pennsylvania Um, they had 16 branches throughout the uh, nation and they were the first ones to fly flowers around the country and start bringing them in from around the world and it was it was a fascinating um profession uh, except it wasn't really for me because I really wanted the art part of it and I wasn't getting the art part of it but I learned a lot while I was in that mm-hmm. um working for that company they still exist uh it's employee owned now and uh that part of the business that led me into my flower shop that after my flower shop, I wound up uh, going back to university to study English literature. And then that took me to England and more study of horticulture and then into the teaching at the university at, at Temple. Hmm. And so I've taught a lot during my um, career. I was teaching while I had my flower shop too. So, um, I was teaching at DelVal College at the time. And and were you teaching floral arranging or growing or both? Uh, that's, that's it. I was teaching uh, advanced floral design. Mm-hmm. I was teaching basic design for landscape architects and horticulturalists. And then I was also teaching um, a business, uh, horticulture business management course, hmm. which was uh, really fascinating. And I, I continued uh that course at, at Temple University teaching that and um, about was it 12 other classes that I taught at, at Temple for a graduate and undergraduate students so I had a plate full of, of classes to teach 
but my 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 favorite and my hallmark that I've been known for were my woody plants classes and my food crops class hmm. classes. So um, the that's how the shrub book kind of came about. While I was uh, at let's see before I was at well no I was at Temple at the time when I went to get my certification uh, to be an arborist. And I think that was back in 2007, because I had been doing some work and volunteering in the community, um, putting in riparian buffers along stream banks and uh, working with uh, tree vitalize and tree tenders. And um, I went for my certification and there weren't a lot of women at the time in in the arborist profession, but there are a lot more now today than ever before, which is great. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I had been asked to do a review of the professional horticulture program at at uh, professional gardening program at Longwood, and that kind of got me into teaching arboriculture at Longwood because. I had helped review the the program with four other professors from other universities around the country. And they said, oh, you're a certified arborist. We want to have an arborist class here. We don't have one of those yet. So would you consider teaching it? And I said, yeah, sure. I'd be willing to teach it. So that's how I wound up teaching arboriculture at Longwood. And then after that, woody plants came up. And I've been teaching that at Longwood since... Um, I think that was in 2009 I started that mm-hmm. so I've been 11 years at Longwood teaching that and and of course I was teaching that at the same time I was teaching Longwood and Temple University at the same time Temple was my full full-time job and then Longwood was my part-time job and what is a, on the the list of things for the the woody plants class that you learn so you learn maybe some identification of woody plants walking around longwood um and i imagine some care as well yeah it's more than that it's you know it's you know how it is when you meet a person for the first time and you learn their name Mm -hmm. and you try to associate it with something else you know and so okay, I want to remember that person's name, Mm -hmm. but it's not just the name you want to know. You want to know more about that person. You know, who are they? What, what do they do? And, you know, how did they get to the same place you are? And so when I, when I talk to my students, I, I tell them, you know, that plants are like people in many, many ways and that they have likes and dislikes and we may not know or see the dislikes because they don't survive in those particular locations mm-hmm. where um, they don't they don't like the environment. They actually just don't survive. Mm-hmm. Or they do poorly, and we don't look at them as stellar specimens, for example. But then we also think about um, we also think about looking at where they're located what what are they doing in their location that they're they're in and who do they associate with just like we do with people who who do these people associate with (laughs) well who do these plants associate with Mm -hmm. um are they with plants that are as big as them are they shorter are they 
Are they, are they those same plants always around them? You know, when you see them in different locations, not necessarily on somebody's front lawn, but in the environment, mm-hmm. for example, if I go to a, a bog or if I go to a woodland, do I see the same plants together? Are they having the same dynamic or are they, do they look similar? Do they look a little different? And you start to build a plant palette that allows people to see associations. I think that's really important. And the other thing from an ID standpoint, I like to point out how uh, certain similarities in families, for example, or flower parts, which is how families are determined, Mm -hmm. that certain flower parts can be ID'd in the field. And you don't even have to know the species of the plant, but because you know the uh, the flower type, you can put it into a family or genus and discover that, okay, well, if it's in this genus, let me see if it's an oak. Mm-hmm. Let me see, let me see if it's an oak and which oak it is. And let me see um, if it's if if it's a red oak or a white oak, and what am I going to be looking for? You know, if, if it has a bristle on the on the um, on the leaf. Uh, lobe, then it's going to be a red in the red oak subgroup. And if it's rounded lobes, it's going to be in the white oak subgroup and, and so on. So you try to help, it's like a deduction of how you go through and look at things and you look with a critical eye rather than um, generalities. Although you begin by looking at generalities and then you start to hone in on specifics. Mm. And I, th- I think that that's really important too, because you know what, when I, when, I, when I was taking my painting classes at Penn State, I remember my professor saying, don't get stuck in, in the details at first. Do the broad brush a, across the whole canvas. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you'll paint yourself into a corner and not learn about everything else that's happening around that. So I said, oh, that makes sense. So, you know, you do the broad brush first and you look at the larger context of the environment and then you start to hone in on plant communities and, and then plant communities, what, what, who is in those plant communities and what's around them, maybe what's on the ground, what's, what's at eye level, what's uh, above eye level and so on. And then you start to uh, appreciate the plants within the context of how they grow and where they grow. Hmm. And uh, we look at maps, like we take, I love the USDA maps because I'll pull up a plant on online in class and I'll say, okay, here's this plant. Let's look at this plant. Okay, we know what it looks like now that I've showed you maybe a stem of it or something like that in photos. But now take a look that the USDA map has this plant growing in Maine all the way to Florida, for example, Mm -hmm. why would a plant be growing from Maine to Florida and just along the coastline? And you think, well, it could be a riparian plant, which would mean that it can tolerate moisture uh, change. It might be salt tolerant, or it might have something to do with bird migration. Mm -hmm where all those plants that are growing along the coastline are associated with specific birds on their migratory trail. And to me, now you start to associate plant with animal. 
and how how those plants get carried from one location to the other or sometimes you'll find that plant that's specifically along a coastline inland well that happens because there might have been a storm that year and the birds got knocked off schedule or or location and had to rest in an area that they typically don't rest in and when they uh when they go uh, you know their excrement or their guano is dropped the seed will be there and you find this plant in an oddball place Hmm. well it's because the animal got knocked off course and those kind of things are fascinating to me because then it gives you a map of animal movement and you could almost figure out how many years ago that happened Mm -hmm. by the size of the plant and where it's located and so on and so forth. So those are the kind of things I think about when I teach. And I ask questions to students about why do you think this plant has this covering on it? Or why do you think it doesn't have a covering on the, on the, on the bud like that? Why mm-hmm. is it imbricated? Or why is it a valve? Or how come the flower is tulip shaped versus, you know, flat? not a tulip shape what is it doing is it is it holding something sure it's it's holding a fragrance and that fragrance is swirling around in that cup-shaped flower and it mesmerizes the pollinator into thinking that oh i think i better stay in here because it's really i'm not really having i'm really having a heady time i'm having a party in here and i'm going to stay in here until i'm tired Mm -hmm. and then i'll go home so those are the kind of things I think about when I'm, um, I'm looking at plants. And, and I also try to impart that to the student because the student becomes more aware of surroundings and becomes much more um, under, I guess, more um, compassionate and observant about things and why they look the way they look. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about your Shrubs and Hedges book. Um, And what I was thinking when I was perusing it is that maybe your time in England had influenced it a lot because I just don't find that many American gardeners um, installing hedges. They might have a little bit of a shrub border or they might have a foundation shrub planting. Um, But um, how do you think about that culturally? Oh, I, I think that's a really great question. And yes, I, I have been influenced that by that, but I also have been influenced by the farm mm-hmm. like lifestyle. So as I was mentioning um, about my aunt's farm, um, farmers would divide their, their, their um, farms by garden rooms. And those rooms would be a specific for a particular crop, mm-hmm. for example, and what they would do is they would clear an, an area of the ancient wood and they would leave a small little trail along the edge, which would be what we would classify as a hedgerow or what they classify as a hedgerow. A hedgerow would be the remains of an ancient woodland that is left there as a protection for the field so that it doesn't, um, it, it, there's a barrier between that and a small roadway that might be on the outskirts of that mm-hmm. hedgerow. And that small little hedgerow or that little lane between two hedgerows becomes a protection for the farmer to move himself and his family and his wagon and his food up and down um, between settlements. So 
the the hedgerow itself at first became a way for the hunter-gatherer to now become an agrarian farmer. And the hedgerow and the farmer were very, the farmer was very observant. He knew that that, if I got rid of all that hedgerow, he wouldn't have any wood, number one, wouldn't have any mm-hmm. shade to, to sit in if he needed shade. But he also knew that they were critical wind blocks for protecting his crops. So they also knew that that was a place for animals to be able to walk up and down. It was also a place for birds to sit and perch and to glean maybe some of the weed seeds that would be, you know, hampering his efforts to grow his vegetables. And so the hedgerow was first developed as a, an agrarian lifestyle. The hedge came about when people started to own ground and it was no longer communally owned, but became individually owned. And gentry started to block off Mm. their properties using uh, typically a solitary or maybe two or three different types of plants to make a hedge. So the hedge became a delineation or property line where hedgerows were not that at all. They were protection and they were diversity and they were animal corridors where hedges became uh, a division between you Mm -hmm. and me, owner and Mm -hmm. non-owner, and started to show the, um, the disparity between those that have and the people who have not. So you'll see that heavily play in uh, the English countryside where the gentry owned uh, the property and the hedges Mm -hmm. as well. So basically hedgerows protecting what's inside, hedges keeping people from coming inside. (laughs) So keeping people outside. Yes, exactly. Yes, yes. And hedgerows also in early agronomic uh, um, life what was also used to keep your cattle mm-hmm. in and the wild animals yep. out. So that was another way to um, to look at it. And so converting that to modern suburban and urban life. So many of us have quarter acre or less lots um, in either in the suburbs or in the city. How would you translate that? Um, shrub hedgerow to a typical suburban yard? Well, in most of the developments in our early development here in this region, a lot of the hedgerows were destroyed to build a development, Mm -hmm. a housing development. If they were left, you'll find them on old farm roads that still have farm properties or sizable parcels, Mm -hmm. for example. And in, in a development, you would find people putting a hedge in to block the neighbor, for example. I own this half, you own that half. That's the kind of, um, that's the kind of um, delineation that you have between neighbors, for example. Um, if you have a, when I say pseudo hedgerow, where 
you take a grouping of plants and they might not all be the same. It might be some trees and you have some shrubs and you have like little areas that you could pass through to go see your neighbor. That's more like a hedge row or pseudo hedge row as I call it. And that's different because you're not totally blocking your neighbor from coming into your, onto your property and you're allowed to go mm-hmm. onto theirs. Um, but then there's also another reason why hedges are used now more in modern times is because if you have, a, if you want to block out noise, people will put those in. A lot of the townships in our region have um, ordinance noises. So on a, um, on the edge of a roadway, if you're on a, on a busy road, you'll, you'll probably put a hedge in front of your house so that you don't have to hear the busy cars mm-hmm. going by. Or it might be as a wind block on the corner of your home or off the corner of your home so that the real strong winter winds aren't going to be um, close to the house if you have a little walkway along there or something like that. Or back patio, you might put a hedge around there so that your neighbors can't see you sitting on the porch in the evening. Um, so you have privacy. So privacy is one of the big things, especially in small Mm-hmm. Uh, on small properties or um, in, in communities where people seem to be living more on top of each other. Uh, you'll see it in cities and in, in small little yards in the back where they'll have a hedgerow or they'll put up a fence because fences take up less space. But uh, for the most part, if you want green, uh, the hedge is the best way to get uh, the green that you want and still still get the privacy that you want. And one of the things that I learned when I went to visit um, one of the nurseries this last summer was that they are constantly developing new plants that will fit mm-hmm. into smaller spaces. So I was thinking of the um, Arbivita Thin Man. It's a very, very narrow plant that could be used in a city setting and not take up a whole lot of space and you have this amazing green hedge and it gives you privacy and it gives you the green that you want. It gives you backdrop and it will buffer noise and uh, maybe provide a little habitat for mm-hmm. small birds. Something so like the mid Atlantic homeowner or gardener will go to their local independent garden center and say buy six Leland cypress <laughs> to put between them and the road. No, um, <laughs> it, <laughs> I know I'm not going to say I'm not going to say Leland cypress. You have yes. to have a big problem. Yeah, so cypress. that would be a typical hedge or roadside installation here. What would you recommend instead of that? Well, and and, and I have a, a cute little story about Leland cypress that you know the English are not not real big on litigical. Uh, they're not a litigical society like we are. We'll sue for anything. Um, over in England, it was the Leland Hedge that started the lawsuits in England because people were blocking the view of the sun oh. of people yeah. who had, uh, you know, the neighbors put up a hedgerow and they mm. never trimmed it. So then they didn't, weren't getting sun in their yard. And all of a sudden, their sunny yard was now mm. nothing but shade. And they relished their sun over there. So um, people started suing each other. So you have to have a really big property for Leland Cypress. So if you're going to put Leland Cypress in, make mm-hmm. sure you have plenty of room. Um, so you can use um, your Arbovitas. There's a lot of Arbovitas now that are, that are 
narrow, like I was saying, Thin Man, for example. Um, but there's also Nigra, a whole host of of um, of Arbovita that could be used, or you can use other things that might be uh, one that you might want to trim. For example, I think the um, the Circus chinensis. Uh, Don Egolf is a Ooh. really great one to make a hedge out of because it, it's not evergreen, but it blooms in the springtime, has an upright fashion shape. Um, it's, it's wide, but you can trim it, um, you know, remove some of the large branches and, and keep it tailored smaller and have an amazing hedge hedge of that along with other maybe perennials or other smaller shrubs in between like the new um, um mini mauvette hydrangea mm-hmm. arborescence which is the smooth leafed hydrangea there it's pink and it has almost the same color as don egoff but it will bloom like right after that gets done so you could have a series of bloom glo- blooming uh plants that act like shrubs i mean well act like a barrier or a hedge um that are nice nice shrubs that you can either use individually or as Mm -hmm. a border yeah and i think the layering effect is is much more pleasing to the eye especially you know at a distance than a solid say green wall um across your property oh yes i definitely agree with you and the other thing that you can do which makes um a hedge much more attractive is to plant it so that it is um, not mm-hmm. in one straight line, but it kind of zigzags. And then in between the, where the, well, is it a zig or <laughs> is it a zag? Wherever the window is, um, you can actually put something mm-hmm. else in there so that you have, again, like I said, the, you know, mini mauvette. You could maybe put um, pink peonies in another one and, you know, have have something all the way down the hedge that would give you a, a varied look that wouldn't be the solid line of plants. Um, they could be very effective as a solid line, but I, I think it also is is much more um, interesting to have a, a diversity of plant material um, in that mm-hmm. uh, structure, the overall structure. And of course, diversity helps to increase um, animal uh, habitat, pollinator sources, uh, mm-hmm you name it, you, you just get, a, you just get a whole array and you bump up your, your diversity. Yeah, and I always say that. inevitably when you plant a row of seven of anything, it's like the third one or the fifth one that dies. <laughs> it's never, it's never one uh, in seven. I, yeah. I, I do, you're exactly right. And I, I pass mm-hmm. one of those kind of hedges um, every day when I was driving to university I would see this hedge and I was thinking, what are they going to do with it now? And they try to keep putting the same thing in there and it keeps dying. Well, there's mm-hmm. obviously something wrong. Um, and, uh, you know, that's, that's something you just want to watch out for. Um, the other thing, there's been studies. I know Penn State did a study where they were looking at a house with uh, a, a hedge and maybe a few shrubs around the house and then lawn. And they found out that there were these eruptions of insects on, they would kind of take their turn, you know, on this plant where you have a monoculture of one plant, uh, you have insect problem. And then 
then you have an insect problem on the other hedges that are on the other side of the yard. And the reason for that is there's not enough um, height diversity within the garden and not enough diversity of plant material. So that when you have small trees, large trees, uh, some hedge type plants, um, the more diversity you have, the more um, animal animal activity you have birds especially like lots of different mm -hmm. heights to hide in and those birds come and eat the pests that are bothering your garden so they determine that the more levels you have in your garden and the more diversity that you have in your garden will actually decrease insect populations and keep them at bay so that they never really get that's an excellent control. point um in diversity is not just the form and the shape, but the height of plants. So exactly. that's a great, exactly. a great design tip and for wildlife gardening to, to keep in mind. Yep. And yeah, so I, I think that in, in itself, and you understand that I, I I'm, I'm kind mm -hmm. of preaching to the choir here, but um, I always like to give people information that is going to help them garden um, like when you see some research done like that and you show that up on a screen, it is so powerful for people to see that it really does empower the people who, who see something like, see something like that. And then, you know, step back from that and say, mm -hmm. wow, what a difference. Um, we don't have to use all those chemicals because we have the birds helping us. The songbirds are, are there to, to clean up whatever, you know, might be an, an overpopulation. So I was looking at your LinkedIn profile and I know it's almost exactly a year ago that you started a new business or a little more than a year called Verdant Earth Educators. Um, and so can you tell me a little bit about that business? Sure. Um, Verdant Earth Educators came out of a idea that um, actually um, my colleague mm -hmm. Louise Clark, uh, uh, and former student, um, came and she said, you know, I think we should start some business. And I, she, we were kind of talking the one night about how there's so, so many bad practices out there when we see how things are mowed and how things are pruned and um, but mainly on large swaths mm -hmm. of property where you may not have people who are well-trained or even trained at all. They're just running the mower and they're, you know, using the hedge clippers and, or the hedge shears. And what we were thinking was that it would be really great if there was a group of people who could actually train people who were managing large grounds, large parcels like university properties and, uh, uh, people who might be uh, working for a municipality who who might love working outdoors but really have not had the training, not any fault of their own, but just because they haven't had the training. And so they get a job and they're working outside. They want to learn more, but they haven't been they haven't had any opportunity to learn what what needs to be done. And so we go in and we offer the training. And it's amazing how people Ooh. are so grateful that their, their university or their municipality brings us in to show them different techniques or different types of tools that they've never seen before and that they could empower themselves by learning how to prune properly, making sure that they understand, you know, 
not mowing close to a stream because you're dumping grass clippings into it and it's causing nitrification downstream, um, you know, keeping that border clip, keeping that border um, away from the stream about 25 feet so that that buffer will protect the waterway, um, you know, not mowing when it's hmm. raining or after a heavy rainstorm because you compress the soil and, and ruin the, the soil structure, those kind of things. And, and a lot of times people don't think about that because they're too in, a, in too much of in a hurry to get a job mm-hmm. done rather than maybe shifting the job that could be done one day versus another uh, in order to protect. Exactly. I think a lot of people are, you know, Monday is mowing day, <laughs> whatever, whatever the weather it is. Exactly. Yeah. You've got that. Mm-hmm. You hit the nail on the head. Um, you know, uh, it goes back to the old adage, Monday's <laughs> wash day, Tuesday's ironing day, Wednesday's whatever. And, and so you have to be very flexible with that. When you're working with nature, you need to be flexible in your time. And I know even, even, you know, some of my neighbors where I used to live, they were like, it's always Friday night's mowing night or Saturday morning's always mowing morning. And it could be raining and they're out there with their heavy mowers and really compacting and leaving ruts in the soil, which is detrimental to your, to your overall health of your property because then it stops better drainage um and the like so so i was looking at your information and seeing that you are a reiki master on top of all these other educational (laughs) uh, (laughs) efforts that you do what brought you to that um well that that's a long road and I had been, um, I had a near death experience when I was 28 years old, uh, when I had my flower shop and I went after, after I survived and was given last rights and all that kind of stuff. I had a friend who worked in the store and she said, you know, I think maybe you should go to a friend of mine and, and talk about, you know, your situation and, and I started doing some spiritual work and, and then uh, a speed up to 2000, 2001, when I was in England studying at the University of Reading, I met a gentleman from uh, India and he said to me, uh, I just want you to know before you leave, after we all go home, he said, I want you to know that my, my mom is a Reiki mas- master teacher in India. My father's a Reiki master and I'm a Reiki practitioner. And I think one day you'll want to be one of these. So I thought, wow, what's that? (laughs) And when I got back to the U.S., I met this friend who got me into my spiritual work. And she said, oh, you're not going to believe what I just did. I became certified in Reiki uh, one. And I was like, oh, my gosh, it's funny that you're talking about that. I had somebody say to me that I should think about becoming a Reiki a practitioner. So I looked it up and I, I went for my certification one, and then I waited a while and I went back for two, three and the master and teacher certification. And I didn't realize, but I had been using those techniques 
mm-hmm. my whole life, really. Um, a technique used to just help not heal a person, but to, to help that person heal themselves. And uh, it's very empowering to help someone help themselves. So when I do my work with that, I can bring that same concept into the classroom and come into the classroom with intention. As a Reiki master teacher, I can, my, my thought process is that if I could teach people at the highest level about the plant world and the energy world, then our world will be a better place. So healing comes from uh, within, but it also comes uh, when we walk through nature. And nature is a big part of, um, I think, the whole process of understanding Reiki and molecular cell Mm -hmm. energy, etc. So, yeah, so... So, yeah, I've been uh, a Reiki master teacher for quite a while now, and I find it to be very um, helpful for when I'm not feeling good, uh, when I could send long-distance energy to someone who might not be feeling good, or even send long-distance energy to a plant that Mm. may be sick that I think needs some help, or an area in the world that is suffering, like the Amazon, or, um, and there's, there's thousands of people around the world that are Reiki people who, who always are looking for the best intention for um, hmm. the earth's energy to heal. And so we, we can do that. Yeah, I'd never heard of intention. Reiki used for plant healing. I've always only heard of, you know, either for the general earth or um, for other people. So that's fascinating. Yeah, it, and it is, we... we um, we sometimes everybody say, comes to my house and they'll say, "Wow, your plants are really amazing. They're so big and they're so lush." And it, you know, I, 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 every time I I water them, I have the intention of them being the best that they can be and mm-hmm. helping them to use their power to be the best that they can be. Yep. Just like people, you know, you have children, you you want them to be the best they can be, and you give them the energy that they that they can take to make themselves better that makes makes, total if that makes sense (laughs) so and i would also say that also covers (laughs) that principle of talking to your plants i always feel like you know taking that one extra second to observe your plant just to interact with it is what makes you go from a black thumb to a green thumb it's just for me as simple as that that you're just taking that little extra second of observation Kathy that is it's it's the same thing as if mm-hmm. you know because we're all living beings um, it's the same thing when they discovered that when children are not hugged mm-hmm. or paid attention to when they're young they have a s- association disorder when they're older and it's the same thing with with other living things on the planet I should say other living beings on the planet that they are also um, they also understand energy and how energy works and whether you don't mm-hmm. like them or you do like them. And, and that energy that your intention provides is, Excellent. is how they thrive. So how can our listeners contact you um, through your website? 
they can contact me through my website or they can reach me at Eva Monheim let's spell Monheim So it's E-V-A. Yes, M-O-N-H-E-I-M. And I know it's evamonheim.com uh, is your main website, correct? And they can purchase yes, your correct. Shrubs and Hedges book, which is entitled clearly Shrubs and Hedges. <laughs> so, and they can, That's exactly how would right. you recommend they order that? Um, well, I don't have any preference as to where they order it from, um, but I do have mm-hmm. a link on my site, um, on my evenmonheim.com site that has my book. Um, you just click on my book and there underneath that it has, you can either get a autographed, um, copy from myself, or you can go to any of the other, um, sites around the country and around the world. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining me on this episode, Eva. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Many of you who know me personally know that I'm a movie addict. I was a member of the DC Film Society for years and attended sneak preview screenings two to three times a week. Seeing those in the theater was not unusual for me in addition to watching several movies a week on cable or DVD. So I guess my average was seven to 10 movies a week at that point. So I think I can talk about gardening in movies to a little extent with you. At this time of quarantine, many of us are watching more movies than ever, and you might have an eagle eye out for some good and bad examples of gardening. One of the worst garden depictions I've ever seen is a movie called Everybody's Fine. It could have been so good. The movie's main character, a retired widow father, is a die-hard gardener. However, in the first few minutes of this movie, gardening is disparaged three times. Basically, it's implied that gardening is for old cronies with one foot in the grave and is an awful snoring bore. We see the dad out in his North Carolina garden, which he meticulously tends during cruel things to his neighbor's shrubs that dare peek over their shared fence. The fact that his window boxes are filled with fake flowers is another alarming element. Then there is a depiction of anybody over 50 being an utter idiot and a technophobe. I won't spoil it uh, in case you actually want to see it, but trust me, I would avoid it. What gets worse in this depiction is the power lines and utility poles. These are scars across our landscape, and somehow they're romanticized in this movie as something um, visually appealing. I recommend you skip this one and see the Italian original Stano Tutte Bene for a much better depiction of landscapes. One of my favorite garden movies of all time is It's Complicated. Fellow gardeners, if you haven't seen this movie, 
Find it on DVD, Netflix, or wherever you get your films. You get the hint of Meryl's character in her marvelous garden at a Santa Barbara, California home. You see it at the edge of several scenes. Getting to know Meryl Streep's character, you can see it coming. Her children are angelic. Her ex is a cheeky, charming child man. Her new beau, sweet as pie. Her homey restaurant is warm and inviting. Her wardrobe is straight out of a Chico's catalog. Her hair, carefree and colored just so. Her home, a dream with a seaside view. And her cooking is drool-worthy. Don't watch this movie if you're hungry. Her friends are always supportive and hilarious. You just know her garden is going to be to die for. So no garden on film has ever equaled this one. There are rows of perfect cabbages, carrots, and beans. Everything bug and blight-free, just perfection. Impossible in real life, but who cares? This is fantasy. You want to hate her, but damn it, how you want to be her. This film is will do more to sell gardening than a thousand photo ops in better homes and gardens. Relish every minute of it. A few other films to look out for in the gardening zone. V is for Vendetta, which is a political movie on some level, an allegory, but it features a rose called the Scarlet Carson, which doesn't actually exist in real life, but there is a Violet Carson, which is similar to it. Um, So check out that movie and look for his marvelous touch with rose gardening. Another one is the Bee Movie, B-E-E as in pollinators. Um, (laughs) It's good for some laughs. Overall, great for bees and pollinators and getting kids to not be afraid of honeybees. On the other hand, this movie gets so many things factually wrong, it's, it's actually bizarre. In some aspects, they're scrupulous in detail with the bees in their hive, but they treat pollen as if it is a magic fairy dust and should one speck of it touch a dying plant, the plant jumps back into full bloom all at once. I won't even go into the depictions of Central Park having cherry trees and roses in bloom at the same time. Um, We'll save that for another rant. Enjoy your gardening, enjoy your movies, and drop me a line if you have a favorite gardening movie to share. Plant Profile, Hakone Grass. Hakone Grass, Hakonicloa macra, is a tough ornamental plant with attractive foliage. It is also known as Japanese forest grass after its country of origin. It forms a pretty weeping mound of bright foliage that looks stunning on the edge of a path as a ground cover and in containers. The foliage colors range from bright green to variegated gold and white hues. In autumn, the grass even takes on gorgeous coppery shades. This is a true multi-seasonal interest plant. Hakone grass is adaptable to many garden situations. It prefers moist, shady spots and well-draining soils. It is resistant to disease or pests and is generally low maintenance. Keep it out of direct afternoon sun as the leaves can get a bit scorched and make sure it never totally dries out. Give it a bit of extra mulch in the fall and if it starts looking tattered, you can cut it back in late winter when the new shoots appear. 
It slowly spreads by rhizome, and after several years, you might want to divide it. The best time to do that is in the spring. The most popular Hakone grass cultivars are Ariola and All Gold. Both are widely available and look terrific combined with other shade-loving plants like Hosta, Toad Lily, and Hellebore. Try a Hakone grass in your garden today. You can grow that. in my garden this week I have a really nice hardy geranium that I've been trialing called pink summer and it started off with just a sprinkling of tiny pink flowers and now it's entirely covered I highly recommend adding hardy geraniums as ground covers especially if you have dry shade spots um, might need a little more Sun for blooming so part shade maybe um, but I would say it thrives in dry part shade conditions. Also blooming in my garden this week, Blatilla, the hardy Chinese ground orchid is putting on its fuchsia pinky purple show. Styrex japonica is sending waves of honey scent across my garden and the bees are flocking to it. Um, also in my garden is a Spirea a double play blue kazoo and it's named for the foliage color not for the um, tiny white flowers that are in clusters all around and that's another pollinator magnet I'm finding um, tons of honeybees and bumblebees are attracted to that over at my community garden plot i've been picking the first of the snack hero pea pods off the vines um, handful of asparagus digging a little bit of radishes they're starting to get their heat on now that the weather has warmed up um, had spinach salad today and a surprise always are the forming of the scapes on the hardneck garlic so one day you're in the plot and there's nothing the next day you go over there's these little uh, pigtail curly cues that i'll be going over probably this afternoon to snip off and then make a pesto or pasta dish with those um, next i'm planning on planting some satina potatoes and finally getting my potato and pepper plants into the ground so that's what's going on in my garden this week. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. Thank you for listening to Garden DC. You can become a listener supporter by going to anchor.fm backslash Kathy dash gents backslash support for as little as 99 cents a month you can become a listener supporter 
and we'll give you a shout out in a future episode. Another way to support Garden DC is to go to WashingtonGardener.com and subscribe to Washington Gardener magazine. You can find Washington Gardener online at WashingtonGardener.com, on Twitter at WDC Gardener, on Instagram at WDC Gardener, and on Facebook.com at Washington Gardener Magazine.